Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Before we begin today's program, I wanted to update you on the Between the Covers Patreon campaign, which has surpassed its second of four milestones to secure its future sustainability as a podcast, and do a shout out to some of the recent contributors. Mary Jane, a teacher and performer of improv in Grand Rapids, Brian, a writer who upped his support, and at iTunes, Indie Summit, who left an iTunes rating and review, another way you can support the show, and Kyle Miner, who also did the same, the author of my favorite book from 2014, Praying Drunk. If you're curious about the Patreon campaign, about becoming a supporter of the show, you can go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Between the Covers. You can also find other means and methods to support the program by going to davidnaman.com slash support. And you can check out the websites of all sorts of uh, creative and interesting people who have supported the show so far at davidnaman.com slash patrons. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning, and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is essayist, editor, and translator Elliot Weinberger. Weinberger is perhaps best known as the translator of poet Octavio Paz, who he started translating at the age of 19. He's also translated works by Vincente Huidobro, Javier Villorutia, and Jorge Luis Borges. And his edition of Borges' selected nonfictions received the National Book Critics Circle Award for Criticism. Weinberger was the first recipient of the Penn Colavacos Award for his promotion of Hispanic literature in the United States, and is the only American literary writer to be awarded the Order of the Aztec Eagle, the highest award given to foreign nationals by the Mexican government. Elliot Weinberger is also a notable figure in the world of Chinese poetry translation. He's the translator of the poet Bei Dao, editor of the New Directions Anthology of Classical Chinese Poetry, which was a Times Literary Supplement International Book of the Year, and he is series editor of Calligrams, Writings from and on China, jointly published by Chinese University of Hong Kong Press and the New York Review of Books. As a writer, Elliot Weinberger is one of the great innovators of the essay form in the English language. Poet and essayist Forrest Gander says, Weinberger has cracked open the essay form in as dramatic a way as Ezra Pound did the poem in the early 20th century. 
his book, An Elemental Thing, alternately described as a serial essay and a documentary prose poem, was named by The Village Voice as one of the 20 best books of the year. His other essay collections include Karmic Traces, Oranges and Peanuts for Sale, and Two American Scenes, a collection of found material from the 19th century transformed into poem essays and co-written with Lydia Davis. Although he doesn't consider himself a poet, Weinberger has also been called America's greatest poet in public intellectual disguise. As a frequent contributor to the London Review of Books and elsewhere, he writes political articles, published widely abroad in many languages, articles that have been collected in books such as What Happened Here, Bush Chronicles, which was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award for Criticism, and his book, What I Heard About Iraq. The Guardian newspaper says every war has its classic anti-war book and called What I Heard About Iraq the classic of the Iraq War. It has been adapted into a prize-winning theater piece, two cantatas, two prize-winning radio plays, a dance performance, and various art installations. And it was read or performed in nearly 100 events throughout the world on March 20, 2006, the anniversary of the invasion. Elliot Weinberger is here today on Between the Covers to talk about his two latest books, both out this year from New Directions, The Ghost of Birds, a book that both continues his serial essay begun in An Elemental Thing, while also collecting more of his political articles, and the reissue of his classic book on translation, 19 Ways of Looking at Wang Wei, in a new and expanded form, a book that Lauren Stein, editor of the Paris Review, calls the best primer on translation he has ever read, also the funniest and the most impatient. Welcome to Between the Covers, Elliot Weinberger. Uh, thank you, David. After that introduction, I think uh, you should be my publicist <laughs> if I ever have one. <laughs> well, before we talk about the ghost of birds in specific, I'd love to talk about the type of essay that you write. Um, essays since Montaigne often are thought of as having a speaker uh, coming from a potentially a single consciousness, or um, often in the first person. But your essays don't have a locatable voice. They they both seem um, like their discoveries from a strange encyclopedia and maybe uh, a mixture of that and a, and a prose poem. Do you do you yourself consider them essays? And if you do consider them essays, um, is there an American tradition of this form of essay that you you place yourself in? The problem, I, I think, with the essay is is uh, exactly what you said, is that it's been sort of stuck in the same form uh, since Montaigne, which is the, the first-person investigation. And the, the essay has never really had an avant-garde the way poetry and, and fiction have had uh, in, in modernism, so that we're now accustomed to many different ways of writing poetry, many different ways of, of writing fiction. But the... the Essay, we still expect to be this 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 uh, first person, what they now call the personal essay. So what I was trying to do is is kind of open up the essay a little bit to try to come up with new ways of presenting um, uh, nonfiction. So my my one rule is that I don't make up anything. I don't I don't blur the the line between fiction and nonfiction the way many many have done. Uh, everything in my essays is is verifiable information. Um, it might not be true from our point of view, but somebody has believed it was true. 
And then from there, I sort of st uh, start from there and then uh, try to uh, come up with, with, with new ways of, of presenting some of that information. Yeah. And what's really interesting about knowing that the information is all verified is that reading your essays is often like reading fantastical fiction. There's, there's a sense of, um, I think, wonder, essentially, about the world when you know that they're all true because they're so incredible at the same time. And that tension seems to really add something, I think, to the essay. Yeah, yeah, because I haven't made it up so that you're, uh, so that you're knowing that, that somebody believes that this is true, and then you have this, this kind of uh, amazing varieties of, of the human imagination, um, none of which is my imagination. And you've mentioned in interviews before that these essays um, wouldn't be recognized as nearly as innovative in other cultures, that there's this stagnation perhaps in innovation in the essay form in the English language, but um, it's much easier for you to find uh, publication in other in other languages perhaps because they're not recognized as um, there's no question of like where should these fit. Can, can you can you talk a little bit about what's happened in other cultures around well, no, the essay I think form? it's I think it's a question of um, of publication in that um, my essays tend to be published uh, in, abroad and in, in translated in other languages in more mainstream magazines and newspapers, whereas here they would pretty much only be published in in small literary magazines, and. Uh, abroad, you have you have traditions of things like the feuilleton, which is which is kind of literary writers writing about anything uh, in the newspapers, which we don't which we don't have here. Um, here, this problem, which <coughs> sorry expands into into uh, also questions of public intellectuals, is that the newspapers are are written by journalists and by pundits and so forth. You don't have literary writers writing about politics and, and, and social issues um, the way you do in, in any other country. Um, many countries, poets normally have, have columns in the newspaper. That's their source of, of making money. Um, so you have this kind of much more uh, open, open traditions abroad of, of uh, literary writers writing on many different topics and in many different ways, whereas here uh, things are, are really locked into, locked into formats. Hmm. I would imagine that perhaps in other countries uh, the average person might be able to name a philosopher or a poet from their own culture in a way that an American might not be able to, 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 to even if they're not reading it, in another culture, maybe they'd be able to say, "Well, that's our that is our poet, public intellectual." Oh yeah, I mean absolutely, because the curious thing about the United States is it's never taken nationalistic pride in its cultural producers, unlike any other country. I mean, I was in uh, Colombia once, and the the cab driver very proudly told me that uh, the Colombian poet Alvaro Mutis had just won a major prize in Spain. Um, most American politicians, I would say, you know, Obama being a great exception, but most American politicians could not name a, an American poet. Uh, where I live in New York City, there's not a single monument to the great writers who lived in New York City, Henry James or Herman Melville or Walt Whitman. It's kind of like imagining Paris without a statue to Balzac. Right. And um, so this is this has been true. There's a there's a kind of um, 
enormous uh, abyss uh, abyss between uh, between um, say the political life of the country nationalistic pride and and uh, the literary life of the country hmm. there's this interesting uh, quote by Forrest Gander in his attempt to describe your essays um, precipitous juxtapositions heuristic leaps lists anaphoric incantation cultural rhymes onomatopoeia parallel structures strong syntactical shifts, refusals of closure, kennings, textual patterns on the page, and merciless understatement characterize these essays. And I've I was never read that. <laughs> I've never heard that one. Do you I was wondering if you feel as he seems to, um, that these essays are are brought into being with many of the same concerns as poetry, even though they aren't even though you're not necessarily considering yourself a poet. Yeah, absolutely. I mean uh uh my self-education is entirely in poetry, and uh, what I'm trying to do is is take many of the aspects of poetry and apply them to writing essays. So uh, I definitely compose, uh, write by sound. I um, try to come up with telling images and uh, and juxtapose those. So I, I try to put them together like poetry. Though some of the the essays are also very much uh, narratives too. Hmm. Can you perhaps walk us through um, how maybe an essay comes into being? The process for you. Uh, I know you start with only verifiable things, and you're doing juxtaposition. Like for instance, if we were to look at the journey on the Colorado River, and you have uh, historical voices and and some voices in uh, italics, and you, you start with a native myth. Yeah, that's a kind of unusual one. Um, because that that comes out of uh, John Wesley Powell's uh, uh, expedition in the on the Colorado River, and what I found uh, fascinating about reading the uh, the diaries of that expedition is that uh, they keep naming everything, and so they'll see sparrows uh, f flying around a cliff, so they'll name it Sparrow Cliff, and so forth, and so on. they always have very literal names. But of course, all of these places had. Of course, original Native American names, but they they're renaming everything, and this this idea of of naming kind of every step of of the journey. Um, but what I did with that, which was kind of unusual, is that I created a soundtrack to go along with it. So all of the the lines that are italicized are actually from nineteenth century hymns. So it's kind of like uh, if if they were you know listening to their iPads as they're floating down the river <laughs> there, this is kind of the music that this is like the soundtrack of the expedition. So it's all uh, all um, bits of hymns which presumably uh, American hymns of the 19th century, which presumably were known to to uh, them. I mean, not all of them, but some of them uh, were certainly known to the people who are on this expedition. So that one was a kind of an unusual uh, uh, essay. The um, often the essays uh, begin with a with a, an odd question that pops into my mind. Like I have an essay about tigers, and it started out uh, because one day I was wondering uh, when Blake wrote "Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright" if he had ever seen a real tiger. So then I started investigating what tigers were around in London in the 18th century in these kind of animal shows. And then there was um, a famous painting of a tiger by Stubbs that, that Blake saw when, when he was an art student. Uh, that led to um, 
a kind of tiger mania around the the figure of this uh, Indian ruler Tipu Sultan in in Mysore, who um, uh, the the tiger of Mysore, who um, was particularly cruel to the British troops. And then that kind of spread into general uh, um, tiger symbolism in various cultures and then ultimately leading to the, the current extinction of tigers. So basically, it's kind of like a, a hunter on a, on a, on a path of, of, of some kind of uh, animal, and, and, and it's how you go from place to place and what you find along the way as you're tracking this uh, this kind of question, yeah. so that's pretty. That's pretty much how, how I work. Um, I'm not writing scholarly essays, so I don't feel like I have to have read everything on the subject. Uh, I just take what what uh, what I find and and try to transform it that way. Well, there's this definitely feels like there's this theme of lost paradise that runs through the ghost of birds and an elemental thing. Most explicitly, The Ghost of Birds begins with alternate retellings of Adam and Eve. But many of the essays evoke both a sense of a great loss of culture that you're exhuming and uh, a terrifying ecological loss, which you just mentioned around the tiger, the loss of species, but also uh, the great diminishment of populations of the species that remain. Um, so even though a journey of the Colorado, Colorado River isn't entirely about this, when all when all of the uh, explorers are naming things, we now recognize how much isn't there in 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 that same place today. The grizzlies, the wolverines, the wolves, the mountain cats and birds. Can you talk a little bit about that that concern for you? Do you feel like part of these projects are about the inexorable disappearance of of both culture and nature? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think that. If you if you go back to the the, uh, the Freudian idea of dreams as wish fulfillment, somehow it seems like these essays uh, perform a kind of wish fulfillment also, and and with the the vanishing of species um, and the general uh, destruction of habitats, I find even though I live in Manhattan, um, that I f I find myself writing about animals all the time, and so um, I hadn't thought. And I guess it's true also uh, that I'm, I'm writing about vanishing cultures all the time, too. So uh, yeah. um, uh, it's a kind of wish fulfillment, but it's not really a conscious, a conscious effort to do it. I just, find, I just find that this is what I happen to be writing about. Well, it's interesting because a lot of these pieces then end up having a conversation intentional or not with each other in the sense that the naming in the, of the journey, journeyers on the Colorado River, we think of Adam naming the animals in, the, mm -hmm. in, in Eden. And then we also think of the origin, the native myth around the Colorado River, which is protecting pa the, the paradise from these explorers in a sense, mm -hmm. which is now inaccessible. It ends up being sort of this um, subtextual conversation, cross essay. You know more about me than I do. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, I just write them, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's. But let's, it's true. I agree. I agree. Uh, well, let's have let's have our our listeners hear one. Would Would you mind reading the dead by chance? Yeah. Okay. The dead. It is not to honor the dead. It is to keep them from coming back. The heavy stones on the grave the high walls and fences around cemeteries, the sturdy, well-sealed coffin. The dead, 
with hands and feet tied, the dead implored to stay where they are. The dying sent off somewhere else to die, so the dead won't linger in the house. Their eyes are closed. They are wrapped in a shroud so that they cannot see the way back. Circuitous paths to the graveyard, burials at night, masks on their faces that they cannot remove. A tiny house for them to live in and stay there. Food and drink on the grave, the corpses dressed in fine clothes, money in the grave so that they will not come back for more. A canoe or raft sent out to sea, the body burned to ashes, the body eaten by vultures. Loud noises, firecrackers, gongs, shouts, church bells ringing to frighten them away. While the corpse is still in the house, one cannot eat, for it too will want to eat. The name of the dead cannot be spoken, for it will think it is being called. The abepones of the Gran Chaco had the given names of plants and animals. When one of them died, they had to invent something new in the language. The word for jaguar, a common name, changed three or four times a year. By the end of the 19th century, there was no one left who spoke the language and could invertedly summon the dead. You've been listening to Elliot Weinberger read from his latest book, The Ghosts of Birds. You, you've called uh, these essays part of a larger project, a serial essay. So this continues... Um, this serial essay from several other books. Can can you tell us what a serial essay is in in your mind? Yeah, I mean it's modeled on the on the American uh, serial poem, uh, which is a, a kind of long poem that can take many years or take a lifetime. The most famous being Pound's Cantos, um, also Olson's Maximus poems, uh, Louis Zukowski's A, and basically the. Um, the subjects change from essay to essay, but many things keep repeating, uh, certain images, even phrases, and so forth. And so I thought I would try to do this. Uh, it's been done in poetry many times. I thought I would just try to do this do this with the essay and, and keep it going for as long as it keeps going. Yeah. Well, as I was mentioning before about the way they, they feel like they're in conversation, it, it, it tempts one to go back and start over with the anticipation that what one has already read will be transformed by what one has mm -hmm. since read in conversation with it. It reminds me of what I'd imagining it like a scroll. Like I think of like how the Torah is like re-rolled and it's a circle and every year you're reading the same thing over, but it's probably not the same thing each time mm -hmm. you read it. Yeah, but you can, unlike the Torah, you can skip around in mine. The, um, <laughs> but that's true. Yeah, I mean, there's a kind of a, you know, an attempt at a, a sort of fugal effect uh, so, that, so, that, so that various things keep, keep coming back again. And uh, someday I'd like to put them all together in, in one book. You know? Yeah, so. and not necessarily a, a true beginning or true ending, I would guess. Or, or would you say there is a true beginning? Um, no, there's not really a true, there's not really a true beginning. Um, there's a preface in the, in the book, an elemental thing. Well, basically I woke up on my 52nd birthday and decided I was going to write a book called An Elemental Thing. I had no idea what the title meant and no idea what was in the book. And then uh, that same day I wrote the preface to a book that I hadn't written, um, which is about the, the, uh, Aztec, 
new fire ceremony, which happens every 52 years. And so it's the kind of, uh, you put out all the fires and then you, you light the, the fires again. So it's like the beginning of a new cycle at, at the, on the, in the 52nd year. So that was the preface. That was actually the beginning. And then from there, it just took off, took mm. off from that. Would you mind reading another? No, um, sure. How, how about the Mara? Oh, okay. In which case, I should read the, uh, the one that comes right after it, too. Okay. Because that's very short. The Mara in northeast India say that ordinary mortals, when they die, go to Athiki, the village of the dead. There it is night when it is day here, and day when it is night. Fish are bamboo leaves there, and bears are hairy caterpillars. The spirit lives for a long time in Afiki, but ultimately dies and comes back to earth. The spirit of a powerful person turns into a bit of heat mist that rises into the sky. The spirit of a poor person becomes a worm and is eaten by a chicken. They say that when people dream, their souls wander off at the end of a long, invisible string. When they have a bad dream, they tell everyone about it. When they have a good dream, they keep it to themselves. They say that there is a giant ficus tree growing on the moon, and the marks on the moon's face that we see are its branches. Living in the tree is a headless monkey. The greatest hunters go forever to paradise called Peira. It is close to the one god and occupied by few, for one must have killed a man in battle, an elephant, a tiger, a bear, a small tree bear, a serau, a gural, a maithun, a rhinoceros, a sambor, a, a barking deer, a wild boar, a crocodile, a hamadryad, an eagle, one of each of the kinds of hornbill, and a king crow. Government troops now keep the peace, and many of the animals are no longer there, so it is unlikely that any Mara will ever go to paradise again. And the next essay is called The Luce. It's just one paragraph long. The Luce, neighbors of the Mara, believe that earthquakes are caused by the people who live in the lower world shaking the ground to see if anyone is still alive up there. When an earthquake occurs, the Luce run out of their houses and shout, alive, alive so that those below will know and stop the shaking. I've been listening to Elliot Weinberger read from The Ghosts of Birds. Well, part two of your book pivots to the realm of the political and the, and the critical, and it fittingly, fittingly begins with uh, a similar form, but instead of being about nature, it's about cities and walls. Uh, you say that the city in the beginning was not just for humans, but was an expression of cosmic power and in connection with the non-human other. That while we build our cities as acts of modernity and no novelty, they built theirs as acts of antiquity, as a recreation of something ancient. In light of this, you, you talk about cities in relationship to literature and literary form, about the ways in which the rise of the megalopolis and the disappearance of the neighborhood has changed literature. And I was hoping maybe you could speak a little bit about that, that interplay between the shape of the city and the, the shape of literary form. Yeah, I mean, certainly uh, um, modernism, as, as has been said many times, is, 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 is the product of the city. 
and um, all of the things that happened in modernism, uh, uh, the multiplicity of voices, collage, all of these things are, are kind of urban, urban creations. But on the other hand, uh, most of the novels of the city are really about neighborhoods because cities are collections of neighborhoods. And so all of the characters inhabit uh, neighborhoods and uh, novels tend to be uh, of the city tend to be about uh, the the very rich or the very poor, both of whom live in in kind of uh, um, a kind of ghettoized situation. One would say one could say. So the question now is that is that we is that we have a new kind of city, which is the megalopolis. Uh, particularly in the third world, not not really in America, but in the third world, cities of 20 or 30 uh, million people or more, most of whom inhabit these uh, these huge anonymous blocks of skyscrapers. Um, this is this is true in 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 so many parts of the world now, and you wonder what is. What kind of literature is the megalopolis going to going to produce? Because these are the most anonymous kinds of cities. You have no there's cities without uh, uh, any place there. There's no there there, as you know, as as Gertrude <laughs> Steinfeld famously said. Um, but there's really no there there. And so, what would be the, what will be the literature of of the future? We have there's kind of no way of imagining there, uh, mm. imagining it. Um, Do you have any suspicions about about no, the? I mean, it's of you it? know, it's curious because the um, how cities translate. Like, for example, there is a um, there is a movie, a Mexican movie about a family living in a slum in Mexico, and it's the most Mexican movie. It's in it's in fantastic Mexican sl uh, slang, and it's got all of these stock characters: the patriarch. The good-for-nothing son, the beautiful daughter who's trying to sleep her way out of the ghetto, and so forth and so on. Except that this movie is adapted uh, from a novel by Mafus about Cairo, huh. you know, about the slums of Cairo. And it's interesting how those things, you know, uh, uh, translate so easily. It's a film called Midak Alley. It's not a great movie, but um, but it's wonderful how you can translate the experience of uh, of of what used to be the experience of, of living in a slum in one third world city translates so perfectly into the slum in, a, in another third world city. It's yeah. Fantastic. Well, when you hear a, a writer say like Bologna, who's often called a transnational writer, do you think that that term is, is something that's hinting at this shift of, of like place and, or the absence of place when one is writing? I don't know how Bologna is a transnational writer. I mean, he's a, he's a, Chile, a Chilean, of course, um, but he's writing a lot about about Mexico, so that's, that's true. A, you know okay. <laughs> <laughs> but they're still very rooted in in the in the place, you know. Yeah, um, I the, would agree. Uh, yeah. um, though I do like that he when he wrote the um, one of his more obscure novels is one called Monsieur Payne, and it's about the Peruvian poet Cesar Vallejo, who is living in total poverty in the 1920s in Paris. And what's wonderful about this this kind of historical novel is that Bolaño does not attempt at all to recreate any historical details from Paris in the 1920s. You know, he just kind of takes off from from there and uh, writes. It's an extremely entertaining novel about about this assassination plot against against Cesar Vallejo. Um, 
what I love about Bolaño is that Bolaño kind of reminds me of the films of Godard in, uh, uh, in the 60s, which was the Godard films had this kind of sheer joy of making a movie and of movies themselves. And what I, what I love about Bolaño is this kind of sheer joy of fiction. Like, it's so much fun to write a novel, and it's so much fun to read a novel, you know, and um, which I don't think you get from too many people. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's a kind of ponderousness about, about, uh, uh, about so much fiction, you know, that... that um, there's also a joy in that that the poet is is a protagonist of of, right, of yeah. some importance. And of course there are all these, you know, <laughs> these kind of wacky intellectuals. Well, in that, I mean, it's also the experience. I mean, for my generation, the uh very similar experience was reading uh Julio Cortazar's Hopscotch, mm -hmm. which was all about these like totally cool intellectuals in Paris in the sixties and fifties yeah. and sixties, listening to jazz and stuff, you know. <laughs> and uh um, so I think the Bolaño characters are, are very, you know, in Savage Detectives and, and so forth, are very much like the, the Cortázar characters in, in Hopscotch. Yeah, that's a good connection. Yeah. And another thing you do in the second half of The Ghost of Birds is walk us through some improbable uh, cross-cultural uh, influences, uh, ones that are that are hidden to us in, in our in our stories about ourselves. And I think about the imposter called the Buddha and uh, also America. The American Indias. American Indias. The American yeah. Indias, yes. American Indias. The American Indias. Um, and you talk about a book in the second one, The Economy of Human Life, translated from an Indian manuscript written by an ancient Brahmin. Could, could you maybe... Um, Talk about where what journey that book takes that's yeah, related I to mean, the United States. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I kind of love the way uh, you know various forms of misinformation get get picked up and then transformed. So this was a book. Um, uh, what was it called? The Economy of, of Human Life. The Economy of Human Life. Okay, The Economy yeah. of Human Life, which was the the first bestseller in the American colonies, and it was supposedly. Um, uh, a book of ancient Indian in, Indian from India uh, wisdom that had been uh, translated by a, a, a lama in in Tibet from the Chinese or some, something like that, and um, and this Indian wisdom kind of sounded a lot like Calvinism, but this was a huge a huge bestseller in uh, in the Americas uh, uh, in the American colonies. I think it's it's probably be easier if I just read these two paragraphs, which kind of explain this, the the story of the book. The mega bestseller in the colonies, first published in 1751 and reprinted 54 times, was *The Economy of Human Life*, translated from an Indian manuscript written by an ancient Brahmin. This ancient book had been given by a lama in the Potala in Lhasa to a Chinese official named Kao Tzu, a man of, quote, grave and noble aspect of great eloquence, who translated it from the Sanskrit, quote, though, as he himself confesses, with an utter incapacity for reaching in the Chinese language the strength and sublimity of the original. Translated from Chinese into English by an unknown hand, the book presented the, quote, oriental system of morality in a series of maxims on modesty, prudence, piety, and temperance that seemed to emanate more from a Calvinist pulpit than the environs of an adorned lingam. 
The book, now believed to be the work of an English bibliophile named Robert Dodsley, had a curious afterlife. It was reprinted verbatim in 1925 by a group of California Rosicrucians as Unto Thee I Grant, The Secret Wisdom of Tibet, which had been transmitted to the Himalayas by the pharaoh Amenhotep IV, Akhenaten, perennial occultist source of the world's religions. The text, in turn, became part of the ultra-secret Circle 7 Koran of the inner-city Moorish Science Temple, which was founded in Newark in 1913 by the prophet Noble Drew Ali and relocated to Chicago in the 1920s. Among the initiates of the Circle 7 Koran were Wallace Fard and Elijah Muhammad, who eventually adapted the sacred knowledge to create the nation of Islam. There is a line then, however jagged, from pseudo-Hinduism to Malcolm X. So, I mean, it's interesting if we look at this this hidden influence, one that you draw out here really well from this false text to Malcolm X, but also to Emerson and Thoreau, but yet it doesn't feel like Indian writings, true Indian writings, have had a huge influence on American culture, not in the same way that um, Chinese poetry has on American poetry, for instance. And I was curious if you had any thoughts on why uh, we haven't seen that influx into the American art forms of Indian influence. Yeah, well, that's the um, that's kind of the point of the essay, is that it's very curious that... Uh, that Indian philosophy has this enormous impact on America. The transcendentalists are all, are all reading the Gita and so forth, uh, Emerson and Thoreau, and so much of it comes out of there. Whitman is obsessed with it uh, and, and so forth into the, into the 20th century, um, but very little of the, of the lyric poetry. Unlike Chinese, where classical Chinese poetry has had this tremendous influence mainly because, I mean, beginning with Ezra Pound, Ezra Pound's Café, which is translations of, of Tang Dynasty poetry, is really the first book of modern poetry in English. So you have this um, tremendous influence of classical Chinese poetry on all the different camps of American poetry throughout the 20th century. But uh, Indian, Indian poetry... Uh, particularly Sanskrit lyric poetry uh, has has had had no, has had no influence. I think because there was a problem of of there were no poets translating translating any any of that. Nothing uh, nothing that uh, that can kind of leap out. Also, this problem of Chinese poetry is is based on on tremendous concision. The Chinese classical language. Um, there's no verb tenses, there's no, um, there's no uh, personal pronouns, there's no difference between singular and plural, and it's this extremely condensed language, unlike uh, the Indian classical languages that are extremely verbose and ornate, and it's kind of hard to translate uh, uh, a uh, when when we are accustomed to sort of imagism, concision of language, uh, it's very difficult to to translate this this much more ornate language, and I I'm finding this because I'm I actually have a, a, a new job which is I'm the the literary editor of the Murti Classical Library of India, 
And this is a 100-year project to translate um, classical Indian texts uh, modeled sort of on the, the Loeb Library of, of Greek and Latin. And my, my task is to try to get these, uh, these extremely eccentric scholars of things like medieval Telugu and, and uh, uh, medieval Bengali and so forth um, to communicate in English which is not because they know everything about the original language and not so much about communicating in English. So I'm actually line editing manuscripts and, and things like that wow. for, this, uh, for this project. But um, the books are wonderful. There's, it's going to be five books a year for 100 years. So I guess all of the editors have to you know, be reincarnated to come back and <laughs> <laughs> work on them again. Yeah. And, uh, um, so it'll be a serial translation. A serial translation. Yeah. So my task is I'm, I'm not a scholar of any of the Indian languages, though I'm a, a great Indophile, and I've spent a lot of time in India. Um, but my, my role is to be kind of the man on the street and the, uh, the sort of ordinary reader and, and try to uh, get a sense of how this thing is going to be read in the, in the English language. Yeah. In, in a conversation you had about translation at one point where the off-cited statistic that only 3 to 5% of books are translated into English, you corrected and said it's really more like 0.3% that's yeah. translated into English. I was wondering, I, I'm not sure what year you had that conversation, but in my, um, my, my vague sense of the world, it feels like we're going through somewhat of a translation renaissance now since the collapse of the big six publishing houses and all these small presses coming in and taking risks and, and translating a lot more than 10 years ago. Is that also Oh, yeah, question? absolutely, absolutely. And uh, um, it's still probably around 0.3% because also the number of books that are being published gets... And it, and it also depends on whether you include self-published books, which adds hundreds of thousands of more books a year. Yeah. Um, but but I never understood why they came up with that 3% figure because it's, it's completely untrue. I mean, that if... If you have 200,000 uh, books that are commercially published, um, there's no, there certainly aren't 6,000 translations, literary translations. Um, but definitely there's, there's been a tremendous boom in translation. Um, I attribute it to George Bush because uh, there's, there's a, a few great spurs toward translation on a kind of, on a kind of uh, from a national perspective. One is a cultural inferiority complex, and the 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 uh, great moment of translation in in early modernism uh, among Americans was because Americans felt culturally inferior to Europe, and so to kind of insert American literature into world literature, they were doing a tremendous amount of translating in the, in the teens and twenties. The second moment was. A, in the 1960s was because of, uh, I feel, because of a kind of national embarrassment during the, uh, during the Vietnam War, during the civil rights movement. Uh, poets got tired of, of hearing about America, about hearing about ourselves, and that was a moment, of course, when the counterculture was opening up to many different uh, alternate ways of, of looking at the world, Native American, Asian, um, and so forth. Um, 
And so there's a, a tremendous amount of translation, and translating translations were enormously influential on American poetry, particularly Latin American uh, poetry and um, Eastern European poetry. Then in the sort of 80s and 90s, it fell off. Uh, before that, I think up till around 1980, it's difficult to think of many American poets who did not translate something. I mean, there's a few exceptions like Robert Frost, but not too many. Everybody translated something. It was part of, of sort of community service to poetry. Then, uh, then translation kind of falls off at the towards the end of the 20th century. Then it picks up a lot during during uh, the Bush administration and during the Iraq War, when once again we were tr tremendously embarrassed to be Americans, and um, so once again we wanted to you know hear hear somebody else you know hear hear what they have to say some, somewhere else, and since then uh, there's been a lot of translation activity. Um, conferences on translation, translation theory, which I have nothing to do with, um, uh, lots of, of independent presses devoted to translation and so forth. So there, there definitely has been a boom. But I would imagine this, this phenomenon that you're pointing out that most uh, significant poets in America were translators, um, that probably is still not true now, I would still guess. Still not true, yeah. That most poets aren't translators now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I want to follow up a little bit about George Bush, since he's he's someone you often write about, and you've said that you you, or you used to write about, and I used to write about right. But uh, now, luckily, I don't have to write about him. But um, you've said before that you're you write your literary essays out of curiosity and your political ones out of indignation, and one of the highlights of the second half of the Ghost of of Birds for me is is your piece Bush, the postmodernist, um, and it has one of my favorite opening lines of all time. In the late 1960s, George Bush Jr. was at Yale branding the buttocks of pledges to the Delta Kappa Epsilon fraternity with a hot coat hanger. Michel Foucault was at the Société Française de Philosophie considering the question, what is an author? And you go on to parse Bush's book, Decision Points, as a work of postmodern literature and comparing it to the anesthetized uh, declarative uh, literature of Kenneth Goldsmith or Tao Lin. And I, I was curious if you actually read uh, Decision Points from cover to cover. I read every word of Decision <laughs> Points. <laughs> the, well, uh, I should backtrack a little bit. I, I, I wrote a lot about the, uh, about the Bush administration and about the, uh, about the Iraq War um, entirely for foreign uh, uh, newspapers and magazines. And my, my political commentary was translated into 30 languages and so forth couldn't really be published here um, because they don't believe in literary writers writing on, on politics. But um, so then, uh, then a, a, a few years post-Bush administration is when he published his, his autobiography, Decision Points, and London Review of Books asked me to review it. So I actually read every, every word of it, but I thought it would be sort of fun to, to review it um, in the context of Foucault and the and the French uh, theory idea of the death of the author, because decision points, quote unquote, by George W. Bush or by quote unquote George W. Bush, 
uh, has no author. I mean, we don't know who, who wrote it, how it was written, or anything. So I kind of uh, reviewed it as this, as this sort of postmodern text that, that has absolutely no, no author at all. Um, but, but now, of course, I'm, I'm, every four years, the London Review uh, drags me back to, to cover the election. So uh, uh, I wrote about Romney Obama, and I had my mini-epic called the Romneyana. And, um, <laughs> and now I've been writing about, about Trump, who, of course, is the, the gift that keeps giving. Um, but I want to I ask you about writing about Trump, because there's something that you wrote— um, Freedom on the March and in uh, about the Iraq War in 2004, and there's a quote in there that uh, has stuck with me about Bush that I wonder about in relationship to Trump. So um, in it, you say an unnamed senior advisor to Bush recently told the journalist Ron Suskind that people like Suskind were members of what we call the reality-based community, those who believe that solutions emerge from a judicious study of discernible reality. However, he explained, that's not the way the world really works anymore. We're an empire now, and when we act, we, we create our own reality. And while you're studying that reality, we'll act again, creating other new realities, which you can study too, and that's how things will sort out. We're history's actors, and you, all of you, will be left to just study what we do. And then you summarize, this may well be the clearest expression yet of the Bush doctrine, to become enraged by particulars, the daily slaughter in Iraq, the prison torture the worst economy since the Great Depression, the banana republic tricks and slanders of the electoral campaign is to miss the point. We are no longer in discernible reality. But that reality seems more discernible than the Trump reality. I mean, it feels like we've, we've, we've fully fulfilled this prophecy of this, this Suskind conversation, it seems to me. And I, I wonder if that presents any challenges of, of, around writing about Trump. Yeah, well, yeah, I really want a hat that says, you know, make reality great again. Um, the, uh, and, and of course, the, the curious thing is, is that, is that uh, Bush made us nostalgic for Reagan, and, and now Trump is making us nostalgic for Bush. Um, but it's true that they're, that they're, they're operating in this, in this uh, comp uh, uh, completely invented alternative form of reality. I mean, most of the things that, that kind of whips up the Trump crowds are, are, are just things that could never possibly happen, like deporting 11 million people uh, uh, or building the wall on, uh, on, the, on the Mexican border or something. These are just... Uh, these are pure fantasy kind of uh, kind of things. So I mean, so he's really entered into this this uh, this amazing uh, parallel universe, um, which which people. It's hard to know whether they believe it or not. I mean, because I think uh, so-called reality television has has kind of created this world where you don't actually believe that what you're seeing is happening. Um, I ran into a friend of mine uh, this summer. I said, so, you know, how's, what's your son doing? And he said, well, he's working this summer on a reality TV show uh, in Alaska. He plays a park ranger who rescues people lost in the woods. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Wow. And 
and it's true that yeah. when you're watching the reality, I mean, if you're watching some reality show of, uh, you know, two people who are left naked on an island, well, you're also aware that there's an enormous television crew filming them at every moment and yeah. so forth. So that so it has this kind of, uh, you know, what Coleridge called the willing suspension of disbelief is true about watching reality TV. You know that this is not true, but you still have fun have fun um, watching it. And I have a feeling that this is this is true of of Trump supporters also is that is that they they enjoy the spectacle um, and they know it's not going to happen. They know it's not real, but on the other hand, it's this. this it's, there's a kind of thrill about this, about it all, you know. And about it being spoken, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. I mean, ultimately, though, uh, uh, people vote for the safer candidate. So, so um, I think that's that's what happened with Sarah Palin too. Yeah. You know, I I always thought that if McCain, McCain had picked some boring Republican congressman to run with him. Uh, he would have beaten Obama, but that the prospect of Sarah Palin possibly occupying the White House because McCain seemed like an old, you know, an old guy, um, that was that was scarier than this this black guy with a funny name. Yeah, you know. So <laughs> well, thank God for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I want to ask you about politics in relationship to poetry. Uh, you did this great interview in Jacket with Kent Johnson, where you say that the retreat of American writers into the creative writing school diaspora has been a sociological disaster. In that same interview, you say it was it was curious that the poem most widely circulated after 9-11 was Auden's poem, September 1st, 1939. In other words, you concluded uh, there was no poem written since then that w spoke so immediately to people. So what I was wondering is if those things two things are linked in your mind, the rise of the academic poet, the disappearance of the poet from the public sphere, and the absence of a contemporary poem as powerful as Auden's to speak to 9-11. You have this phenomenon that, that basically 99% of poets now teach creative writing. And you also have the phenomena that, that every year uh, 2,000 people graduate with MFAs in, in poetry writing. So this has been this just enormous um, boom of, of poets uh, with, the, with the result that it's very difficult to make any sort of impact as a poet. Uh, when I was 20, say, I pretty much knew who every poet in America was. Not that I had read every single book by them, but I knew who, who, who everyone was. Now I couldn't possibly begin <laughs> to know or even know really what's going on in poetry because it's, it's been so tremendously balkanized. Um, it was also a much healthier environment when, I mean, poets seem to have forgotten that the, uh, that the entire, or writers in general, that the, that the entirety of world literature, with the exception of um, American poetry since the since around 1975 was written by people who did not teach creative writing, so they all had to do something else. They had to be out in the world doing something, as uh, no matter what, no matter what it what it was. And poetry books, in fact, used to. Um, the the uh, the bios for the poets on uh, always used to come up with more and more strange professions that they had done. So and so has worked as a grave digger, a coal miner, a uh, you know whatever, parachute maker. Um, now it's of course 
where they teach and what prizes, prizes they have won. So I think it was much healthier for poetry in general. Of course, in terms of the individual, you can't beat the job because it's, you know, the hours are short, vacations are long, and so forth. But in terms of poetry in general, it's much healthier when poets are out in the world doing something else. Yeah. And um, I think this has, this has political ramifications, too. Uh, I've never understood why... If writers, if what writers presumably know how to do is write, then why aren't they writing about the political situation? I mean, many poets, of course, are unhappy or are disturbed by, by what's going on in, in, in the world, um, but they're not writing about it. And so it becomes a, uh, a kind of self-fulfilling um, uh, thing that, that, uh, that well, they, they've... You know they're not writing about it, therefore they feel they, they there's no place to publish their writing about it, and so forth and so on. But especially now uh, with with the internet, where you can become your own publisher, you can run your own newspaper, magazine, whatever. Why aren't the poets in, in, involved in it? And um, this was especially true in the in the Iraq War. I mean, the Vietnam War produced uh, poets were tremendously important. Uh, writing poet, poems that, that are, are still worth reading now were tremendously important in, in generally changing conscious, the consciousness about the Vietnam War. Uh, this didn't happen in the Iraq War. I mean, there were these things where uh, um, there was some poetry against the Iraq War, but basically people just took their same old poems and said, okay, now it's against the Iraq War. And the, the curious thing is, 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 is I, I wrote this kind of documentary poem, which is, the, which is a, a history of the Iraq War, which is called What I Heard About Iraq. And it turned into this, this worldwide phenomena, and I think not because it's such a great text, but because there was nothing else. Mm. Um, I, I think that's how that, that ended up being, uh, being so, so widely read, was just... Uh, in the absence of anything else, there was kind of nothing. There were no other literary texts against the war in Iraq that were particularly memorable. Well, you've cited two different American models of politically engaged poetry: the overtly engaged model of Ginsburg and Baraka, and then the more interior. Uh, and you, you cite Oppen as an example mm -hmm. of the rarer, more interior uh, version of poetry that's connected to the political zeitgeist in, in some way. Do you feel like there's been any improvement in contemporary poetry in that regard? There's certainly no figure like like uh, like Allen Ginsberg around anymore. I mean, Oppen was a, was a special case because Oppen is the extreme case of somebody who stopped writing poetry. Uh, to do, he was a member of the Communist Party to devote himself to organizing. So he basically stopped writing poetry for for 25 years. So that's the kind of extreme position. Uh, he didn't want to write social realist poetry or, or, or kind of agitprop, agitprop poetry, so, so he basically stopped writing poetry completely. Ginsburg, of course, is the, the, the great example of the incredibly engaged poet uh, who is on the... Uh, uh, the front lines of many different many different battles, and uh, I I do think that poetry 
you know, I mean, Auden famously said poetry makes nothing happen, but I don't, I don't really believe that at all because I think poetry changes consciousness. And you look at something like gay marriage, for example. Uh, I think we reached the point where gay marriage has become a universal because of poets in the 1940s and 50s, such as Robert Duncan writing his essays on, on, on the famous essay on the role of the homosexual in society. Uh, the poet Jack Spicer is one of the founders of the Mattachine Society. Ginsburg's very openly homoerotic poetry. Um, all of these things s start off, uh, drip down. There's a kind of trickle-down theory there. Uh, drip down into consciousness. And, and with, with gay marriage, um, I think this then got trans... It started with the poets, then got transformed by television and was transformed when every single sitcom had a gay character on it. And then people started thinking, oh, yeah, well, my cousin Eddie, he's gay, he's okay, you know, or I, my neighbor is gay and so forth. So these things kind of have this, this, uh, this effect that it starts out as, as a little stream and then, and then turns, in, turns into a river. Well, before we finish today, let's talk briefly about the reissue of, of the 19 ways of looking at Wang Wei. Uh, tell, us, tell us how it's expanded and, and what you discovered in, in reissuing it. Yeah, so 19 ways of looking at Wang Wei um, was uh, originally written in 1979 and then published as a book in, in 1986. It first came out in a magazine. Um, then I had one of those author nightmares in that it was held hostage by an evil publisher for 30 years, and I finally was able to um, to get the rights back in exchange for all the royalties he never paid me, and uh, to uh, and it's finally had a uh, now has a home at New Directions, which has been my publisher for the last 40 years. And um, so I thought if uh, to reissue it, I would, I would um, update it with many of the new translations that have come out of the same. The book is basically looks at different translations of the same four-line poem by the, the Tang Dynasty poet Wang Wei and the many, many different ways of translating this, this poem that only has 20 words. The curious thing uh, in the expansion is that all of the new English translations of the poem uh, were written by people who had read this book and were aware of all of the previous translations. Right. So now they have to come up with something new to translate the poem. So there's a kind of, uh, there's a challenge there, you know. Um, it becomes more and more difficult. I'd it imagine. becomes more and more difficult to to come up. So it's kind of interesting to see how how they're basically working out of out of the previous translations yeah. and, and so forth. But um, uh, so it's 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 fun looking looking at that. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned the uh, the the project you're working on around Indian translation. Mm -hmm. um, what else are you? What else can we expect from you in the future? Uh, more of the same, really. You know, I mean, I just continue to write to write more essays. Um, I haven't really done any translating in about twenty years, so I, I no longer translate, but I try to uh, do various things that encourage uh, uh, younger translators. And so I'll be writing more essays. Um, hopefully, after after November eighth, I won't have to write on politics again for another four years. 
and uh, and I'm working on the um, this Murti Library, and then on my Chinese series also for New York Review. So there's there's some some good books coming out from there. Well, it's great having you on Between the Covers today. Oh, Elliot. thanks. We're talking today to Elliot Weinberger about his latest books, The Ghost of Birds and the reissue of 19 Ways of Looking at Wang Wei. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers. And also while you're there, check out the growing archive of bonus material available. Thanks for listening.